Hello and welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. I hope you enjoyed our mini-series, New Shores, hosted by my colleague, Allegra Dawes. We'll be turning away from the IRA and U.S. policy this week to take a look at how several other major economies have shaped their energy policy. Korea and Japan are both resource poor when it comes to energy sources. Powering their economies has required both countries to develop global supply chains, for fossil fuels, nuclear power, and renewable energy. To help us understand how these two countries employ different approaches to achieving energy security, we're joined today by Dr. Song Ik Oh, Director General of the Korean Ministry of Land, Infrastructure, and Transport. Dr. Oh is author of the recent book, Overseas Energy Investment of Korea and Japan, How Did Two East Asian Resource-Rare Industrial Giants Respond to Energy Security Challenges? This in-depth study offers practical insights into how Korea and Japan's political landscapes shaped their energy policies. Dr. Oh is joined by my colleague, Jane Nakano. Here's Jane to lead the discussion. You recently published a book, Overseas Energy Investment of Korea and Japan. So there's some you know, very well-known similarities between South Korea and Japan. One of the major similarities is that both South Korea and Japan are industrial democracies that are heavily dependent on overseas energy resources by the maritime transit. But one of the key takeaways from your book is that the two countries have still ended up with different energy security policies, despite some major similarities. So could you tell us more about that finding or the takeaway? In other words, what are some of the key differences between Korea's and Japan's energy security policies? I want to point out two key differences. The first one is that while Japan's overseas oil and gas development is mainly done by private sector, more than half of Korea's overseas oil and gas development is carried out by the public corporations uh, such as KNOC and COGES. The second not- notable difference lies in policy consistency and the resulting outcome. In the case of Japan, its energy security policies have been consistently pursued, resulting in an upward trend of oil and natural gas self-sufficiency ratio. On the other hand, Korea has witnessed shift in policy priorities with every change of administration. Some political leaders showed high interest. Others were rather indifferent. And this created a challenging environment for maintaining policy consistency. Such a lack of consistency affected policy outcomes, resulting in a decline in oil and gas self-sufficiency ratio in the second decade of 21st century. Is there any other factor that also accounted for such differences? Or is it mainly really the difference in the political system and also the leadership you know, level of interest? Is that a fair way to characterize? So basically, my explanation is uh, it the number of bitter players accounts for such differences. 
according to the Vito player theory, if there are more Vito players, it is more difficult to change policies, which leads to policy resoluteness. Here, a Vito player refers to an individual or collective actor with the authority or power to block or veto changes in policy. In other words, their agreement or consent is necessary for any policy decision or change to be implemented. Japan has a large number of veto players than Korea. Their presence is very noticeable in the significant role of Japan's Liberal Democratic Party, LDP, in policymaking. LDP's Policy Affairs Research Council and the LDP Executive Council are quite influential in Japan's political scene. Another aspect is the role of interest groups acting as veto players in policymaking, such as the Japan Business Federation, KDANET. And for those that are not as familiar with the basic structures of Korean and Japanese political systems, while Japan has a parliamentary yeah. system, yeah. Korea has a presidential system. And yeah. I, it's also interesting, unlike ours, the United States, yeah. I think it's a one-term, five-year yeah. system. Yes, yeah, it's, you know, I think there's, there's still, I guess, enough varieties within the presidential system, I suppose. Yes. Yeah, so it's, yeah. That is, is definitely interesting difference between the two countries. And in your, your book, you yeah. closely examines the relations between these different stakeholders. So there's the political leadership, yeah. bureaucracy, and the entities or agents for overseas oil and gas development in these two countries. And you've already mentioned yeah. in yeah. Korea, KNOC and Kogas are the, the key entities. And for Japan, I think your book mentions impacts. Yeah. So how have these entities come about? What gave birth to these entities? Yeah. Well, first, in Korea, KNA was established in the 1970s. Initially, the idea was to establish a state-owned enterprise solely for oil stockpiling in the aftermath of the first oil shock. But this concept evolved, leading to the creation of a vertically integrated state-owned oil company. Korea's Ministry of Trade and Industry, and later its successor, the Ministry of Energy and Resources, made great efforts in establishing the Korea Petroleum Development Corporation, we called PADCO, in 1979, which would later become KNOC. The successful realization of this endeavor was fueled by high domestic interest in oil resources at that time and Japan's delayed ratification of the Korea-Japan Agreement on Joint Development of Continental Shelf in the East China Sea. In Japan, the modern-day impacts was established during the Koizumi administration as a response to the disbandment of the Japan National Oil Corporation, we called it JNOC. 
At first, Japan's Ministry of Economy, Trade, and Industry, METI, proposed creation of a state-owned oil company to manage the important oil and gas assets inherited from Jaina. However, METI's proposal failed to be realized. Instead, Impex, one of Jainok's better-performing subsidiaries, went through the process of privatization. Faced with a complex political landscape with many bitter players, and in particular the opposition from Mr. Horiuchi, then head of the LDP Executive Council, METI invaded these difficulties by creating a quasi-SOE through a rarely utilized market mechanism known as the golden share. That's really interesting. As far as the, you know, some of the specific roles, uh, what are some of the examples of the roles that they play in you know, trying to secure the nation's energy security? Both of them have played a major role in domestic and overseas oil and gas exploration. For Kano, oil stockpiling was another important task. And right at the moment, I think energy security is gaining renewed appreciation, unfortunately due to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. That's causing a lot of energy security concerns, not just in Europe, but in many of the other countries, right, given volatilities and oil gas markets and et cetera. Mm -hmm. How are these entities in both South Korea and Japan responding to the current energy security concern? Yeah, their responses differ but they both share a common objective, that is, securing autonomous development of oil and gas in the face of supply fluctuations and price volatility. While Kano has focused on the domestic offshore sector, Impex is focusing on enhancing its exploration capacity based on its own operatorship in overseas projects like Abadi project in Indonesia. At this point, I would like to stress that it is crucial for both Korea and Japan to establish a robust energy supply base within the region. This can be achieved by leveraging the Korea-Japan Agreement on Joint Development of Continental Chef in the East China Sea. This agreement has been in effect since June 1978 and is set to expire in June 2028 if there is a three-year prior notice given in June 2025. Now I would like to encourage Korea and Japan to consider extending this agreement to address the current uncertainties in the global energy market, just like back in the 1970s, when Korea and Japan had overcome their differences and successfully cooperated for joint development in the East China Sea to overcome the first oil shock. There have been, from what I understand in the media, you know, quite a few rounds of positive exchanges between yeah. Seoul and Tokyo, from what I understand. Yeah. 
would you say that, that maybe there is a higher chance that this agreement could be extended before 2028? Uh, what I can say is, I hope so. Yeah, <laughs> fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> Let me stay with this energy security theme for a moment, but also throw in this climate change challenge that the world faces. Yeah. I think a growing number of countries, especially mm-hmm. the advanced industrialized economies, view energy security and climate change as the dual challenge. It's no yeah. longer, you know, yeah. oh, if we try to secure energy, then we have to give up on decarbonization. I think right at the moment, there is considerable efforts to really address both. And and to some extent, or I think to a large extent, there are many technologies Mm. that are becoming available that that can help governments pursue both. But what does this dual challenge, both energy security and climate change, mean to Korea's and Japan's quest for energy security? During this period of facing the dual challenge, it signifies a shift in how we secure our energy supply. In the past, energy security relied on diversifying the countries from which we imported oil and gas. Now, in the midst of this dual challenge, energy security is achieved not only by diversification of import sources, but also through diversification of energy production sources, such as renewable energy. And is this dual challenge altering the scope of these entities like KNOC, COGAS, yeah. uh, in the case of South Korea, and yeah. IMPEX in, in the case of Japan, their missions and or actions? Mm-hmm. Their responses to the dual challenges are rather different. Kano, for instance, is expanding its business scope to include renewable energy. Uh, revising the Kano law is being deliberated in the National Assembly, and Kano is currently studying the possibility of carbon capture and storage CCS project. On the other hand, IMPEX is focusing on ESG initiatives within its own exploration and development activities. Such initiatives include environment and social assessment and monitoring, as well as the greenhouse gas emission management process. So the United States has become a major supplier of oil and gas in the world. And energy trade has become a key element of U.S. economic ties with key allies and partners, such as South Korea and Japan. Do you observe any difference between the Korean and Japanese approaches to energy engagements with the United States? Yeah. Korea has maintained a robust partnership with the U.S. and took the significant step of stopping its imports of Russian oil last year. Moreover, Korea's natural gas imports from the U.S. now surpass those from Russia, with the volume being three times larger. This also puts Korea ahead of Japan in terms of the volume of U.S. natural gas imports. On the other hand, Japan's natural gas market experienced a shift in 2022 
with the share of U.S. natural gas becoming smaller than that of Russia, which is quite different from the situation in 2021. Also, Japan granted permission for the import of Sahalin oil and gas from the project in which Japanese companies hold equity this year. This change in approach seems to be connected to whether or not a country has equity oil assets in Russia. Also, it can be explained that whether decision-making system is centralized or not affect this different approach between two countries. So I guess Japan has is still uh, staying with LNG projects like Sahalin 2. Yeah. So does Korea not have any engagements on either gas side or oil side with Russia? For exploration, uh, there's no equity. Okay. Yeah. And Russia is one of the resource-rich countries in mm -hmm. that in the Pacific region. And I think the, the geopolitical mm -hmm. environment shifting as drastically in recent years uh, certainly makes it uh, makes the sort of a calculation behind mm -hmm. you know the sourcing and volume and i think types of engagements quite challenging now that was really interesting yeah. comparison i'd be interested in your view on how both korea and japan are approaching non-oil and gas energy mm -hmm. engagements with the united states mm -hmm. do you think it will start shifting away from oil and gas given some of the environmental scrutiny or you know because there are so many korean companies that are uh -huh. active in partnering with uh, u.s companies and also u.s states and uh -huh. different localities to help develop clean energy manufacturing and etc. Yeah. It's definitely an area where we see a lot of coverage. Mm -hmm. Is that some trend that's going to stay for a while or? I think that Korea and Japan, both countries are eager to pursue energy security by utilizing renewable energy sector and enhancing uh, battery industry and the trilateral cooperation between the US, Korea and Japan uh, will make this environment more better than before. So I hope trilateral cooperation can be a, a stepping stone for Korea and Japan and the U.S. Uh, cooperate for the uh, better future by responding to climate change wisely. So to going back to the Russia question, so what accounts for the difference between particularly Korea's decision to walk away from Russia more decisively and probably quickly than Japan's decision, if I'm not mistaken, there's engagement, but I think there has been pause on mm -hmm. expanding any you know, future or further energy engagement between Japan and, and Russia. 
Mm-hmm. But what what accounts for the difference in approach? Even though I think mm-hmm. you know both countries are key allies of the United States. Yeah. Mm. So basically, the decision making structure uh, matters. Uh, Korea in Korea, uh, we have small number of veto players, and Japan have. Large number of bitter players. Therefore, Korea's policy change is very decisive, and Japan's policy change is uh, gradual. That can explain how Korea and Japan uh, respond to current geopolitical situation vis-à-vis Russia. This was a really interesting conversation, not just because I think your book is a great resource for anyone who's interested in how energy security policymaking has been done and, and perhaps evolving in Northeast Asia, yeah. but in also it, your analysis, you know, implications for you know what's happening right now in mm-hmm. you know in the energy market, but then also future energy security concerns. So mm-hmm. I very much enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so yeah. much, Selnik, for joining me today. Thank you, Jane. Thanks to Dr. Oh for joining Energy360 and sharing his insights into Korea and Japan's energy sectors, as well as their approach to climate change, to the global energy markets, and their relationships with the United States. For those looking for a readable study on energy security policy, there's a link in our show description to Dr. Oh's book. As always, you can find more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts or at CSIS.org. You can follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy. And as always, thanks for listening.